Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and throughout their career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and look inward, delving into topics that help expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 29, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. Well, today we've got a, a great episode, uh, and it's all about uh, chronic slash persistent pain and uh, we've got uh, two guests on the show today um, and I'd like to introduce uh, to you Alex Chisholm and Janet Hawley and they're two physiotherapists who have a passion for helping pa- um, patients with chronic pain and both Alex and Janet were part of the working group who helped put together the chronic pain toolkit that was recently published by Physiotherapy Alberta. Alex and Janet welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, you two before we dive into the topic of chronic chronic or persistent pain. Andrew and I would really enjoy hearing um, and having you share with our audience your current areas of practice and also how you got interested in uh, in this area. Take it away, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alex Chisholm and I work at the Foothills Medical Center and right now I'm on the Burns Plastic Team, which is really my uh, area of passion and love and I kind of fell into chronic pain a sort of an unusual way so when my twins were born my the littlest one was on a CPAP and we were struggling and I was doing some reading and I fell across some interesting work by a Dr. Frank Putnam and a Dr. Bennett Brown and they talked about actually um, dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder that you can actually need glasses in one personality and not in another and be diabetic in one alter and not in another and be allergic to something in one alter and not in another and that kind of blew my brain up because I really didn't understand how that could be which then got me interested well what can our brains actually do so I went and got trained in hypnosis so I could use it with my daughter and one day ended up using it on the burn unit with a patient in which nothing else had worked and that began my love of pain and what your brain can do about it. And I went back to school to do my uh, pain certificate from U of A and my interest has just grown from there. Um, So I'm Janet Hawley. I work at the Ottawa Hospital Rehabilitation Centre. And I started off my career many, many moons ago as your typical outpatient orthopedic clinician, um, only to discover the more I tried to work with these patients that apparently had tissue problems, there was just no way there was anything wrong with their tissues, and that something else was going on. So I started reading and started exploring some of Ramachandran's work, and from there just kept exploring the things that came out after that, and um, sort of decided that the bulk of my caseload, like 90% of it, was actually patients with persistent pain um, and not nociceptive input, although I do see some patients with mixed input. And then as my career evolved, I decided to go back to school sillyly and got my master's, and At that time, I was being besieged with complex regional pain patients, um, which I was quite frustrated with, not frustrated with the patients, but frustrated that I felt that my skill set in treating them wasn't very good. Um, So this was an online master's. So for my big paper, which isn't a thesis, I wrote a research protocol to explore um, some of the sensory deficit areas that I was seeing in complex regional pain, but to explore it as a treatment modality in our virtual reality Karen land that I get to play with. 
and the more I work in our Karen lab um, adjusting the sensory world, the more I realize that for certain pain conditions, um, in some ways the brain is really cool, and I think the possibilities potentially to make neuroplastic change are possibly endless with the right tools and the right knowledge. Good. I, I mean, I think that's that's some really helpful background, uh, you know, for everyone listening to just get a sense of how different our backgrounds can be to actually uh, start to explore this area and 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 where there was this need, you know, from from very different angles, that really drove you guys to uh, you know move forward in this area in very innovative ways. Well, it's a fascinating area. Can never learn enough. Yeah. No, just when you think you understand, you don't know anything. <laughs> and that's a good thing beginner's yeah. mind well and i think with like that you know sort of segues into one of the first topics that we wanted to talk about um is around our own beliefs as therapists and if we think about beginner's mind and you know some of the beliefs that we we pull in as therapists around the uh the topic of chronic or persistent pain um and i was and i thought you know why don't we start there and and let's sort of delve into this a little bit about um, you know, what do you feel are some of the common beliefs that therapists that, that you've come across, um, that they have around chronic pain? Well, um, if we go back to, uh, the, the concept of stigma, um, I don't think a lot of clinicians realize how much stigma they bring into a relationship about how a patient acquired their persistent pain. I think there's still a lot of, um, um, unspoken blame that's being projected at the patient that they either had some sort of psychological problem prior to their injury that led directly to them developing persistent pain, or they're not trying hard enough, or they're looking for secondary gain, or something along that line. I'd 100% uh, agree with that. And I find a lot of time, and potentially it might be partly where I'm working, is pain is considered to be tissue damage, that if that person has pain, it has to be from tissue damage. And that we have these patients that Jan is talking about, and oftentimes you get this sort of belief that it's impossible to change. You know, why do I have to go see them? Because nothing's going to change. And, um, and we know that that's not necessarily the case. And um, one of my other sort of pet peeves about beliefs, um, Janet and I talked about this earlier, is that so often I'll read in a chart, you know, patient complains of five out of 10 pain and really do our patients complain of five out of 10 pain or are they reporting to us what we've asked them on the numeric rating scale? Is it really a complaint when they say that? Because we mm. rarely say they're complaining of a fever, but we'll say they're complaining of pain. So those are some sort of beliefs. And I think another belief that, um, and I, I think I had earlier myself before I learned more was that acute pain if somebody has an 8 out of 10 acute pain it's going to look the same if it's chronic and it, it really does not look the same so somebody who's chronic pain and reporting 8 out of 10 they are not going to look like an acute 8 out of 10 doesn't mean they're still mm -hmm. not experiencing it one of the other things as well is people often say that people have fear avoidance behaviors to movement. And certainly we have patients with persistent pain who do, but I think the population percentage in persistent pain is much smaller than people realize. Is a lot of people that wait for years to get through the system to get to 
um, clinicians working in the area of pain have learned to adapt their movement patterns so that they can achieve other things in their lives. So they know if they walk at that walking speed, then they're not going to be able to make dinner because their back is going to be so sore. Um, so they've slowed down their gait or they don't want to lift their hand up above their head because they know they can't use that arm for the rest of the day because it's too sore to tolerate or they won't sleep all night. And then we accuse them of fear avoidance behavior instead of discussing what is actually behind those behaviors first. And maybe it no longer is an adaptive behavior, but it may have been in the beginning and the patient may not be aware that the same outcome comes from using the arm. But that's not really fear avoidance so much as lack of knowledge. I totally agree with that. And I think we judge people in that in that manner. And they may have had that experience if they do it a hundred times, they got pain every time. Well, we'd call them insane to do something else repetitively and expect a different outcome. Yeah. You know, yeah. if every time I bang my head into the wall, now I stop banging it. Am I fear avoidant? Yeah, I'm a you know, I, I am because yeah. I don't yeah. like it how much it hurts when I hit my head into the wall. So I would score high on that one. But I think it and it all come it all comes to context. Context yeah. and, and not just taking a number on a on a scale and mm -hmm. saying they rate this, but looking at the context in which that happened, as Janet said, how did it develop? How did they get there? Was it useful at one point, but is no longer useful, which is which is true for many things. Or may still be useful. Absolutely. So, so if I'm hearing you guys correctly, then, um, you know, what you're saying is that w there's a stigma that develops or that often comes into, a, you know, early on into a relationship with a patient. And some of that is, is being set up by some of the language that we're using, um, you know, with other clinicians or with, within ourselves in terms of our own charting. Within the system the as system, well. Yeah. Like, I think, I, yeah. I think Alex, you had said, um, you know, it, or it could have been Janet that said, you know, um, in the area that I'm in, that I work in, pain is tissue damage, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, that is a systemic sort of belief. You're working with other clinicians, um, you know, that, I think that's a whole other topic we can talk about, just how you can, how you can, how you address that when you're the lone person, you know, with this knowledge and you're trying to shift beliefs and shift, um, shift behaviors within, within a, within a unit or within a whole area, right? Does anybody know who gets the most pain education out of all healthcare professionals? Vets do. Vets do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Vets do. Yeah. Yeah. Humans don't need it. We don't have pain. <laughs> Vets and then physios. It goes, uh, the main number of hours for a vet is 87. They have amazing, and their literature is amazing, actually. Physio, the main number is 41. RNs is 31. MDs, 16. Ow. That, I think, in a nutshell, that yeah. says a lot. So it says about how well positions physios are to guide pain education and, and chronic pain in the future, but also may explain some of our problems. Well, yeah, because I know that, you know, Max and I were chatting before and we were saying how, you know, really, I mean, the majority, if not all patients that are coming, especially in an, in an outpatient uh, private setting, well, even even in any setting really, is, is, is about pain, right? I mean, we're, we're helping, uh, you know, uh, address pain so that we can improve quality of life and, and function and, you know, all that, but, but there's that commonality that exists across all practice areas. Um, 
And so I think, you know, we were just talking about how we really need to have a better handle on this topic. And when you say 41 hours, you know, I'm going, well, but what is that? What is the quality of that 41 hours? Like, you know, what are we focusing? Are we focusing on nociceptive pain, right? Are, is, that, is that our definition of it? And that's how we're addressing it. So, like, I think great that we're number Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off-the-shelf moldable insoles, and it's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient, they've got a great arch support, and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order, and when you refer them to Soul, they get free shipping and 10% off. Make sure to check them out at yoursoul.com forward slash health dash professionals. That's Y-O-U-R s-o-l-e dot com forward slash health dash professionals all right back to the show two behind vets you know however what is the quality and, and what are we talking about a third of those places so they looked at med schools nursing schools pt ot and dentist and a third of them had no mandatory dedicated pain education at all that explains a lot <laughs> Wow. So, so what you're saying is that we've got a, we've got a, a long road ahead of us in terms of uh, not only education within our profession, but also, you know, um, being able to show, you know, and give some leadership in this area uh, across some of these other health uh, disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wh- what would you guys say is a belief that you feel you've had to monitor within yourselves as it relates to, uh, you know, your interaction with patients and around, you know, uh, persistent pain? I think when I started sort of down this road, I did not believe that language had such an important role in it. So one of my first few courses, they were talking about the power of language. And I thought, you know, I was so used to, I've been practicing for a long time and I'm not going to tell you how long. And I learned, you know, three sets of 10 and, and, and stuff that I could touch and hold and um, the thought that language could make such a difference was really difficult for me, and especially the word try. So I did a little experiment because I just really, in my head, I heard what they were saying. But back then there wasn't some, now there's good work, like Elvira Lang's done some amazing work about why language matters. But at that point, it wasn't done yet. And so I did a little um, sort of test when I was, I was working ortho and I decided, okay, on one side of the hallway, everybody that we get out of bed, I'm going to say, I'm going to try to get you out of bed today. And, or we're going to try and get up. And the other side of the unit, I'm going to say to them, I'm going to help you get up today and we're going to walk. And by Friday, I was completely astounded at the difference. It was Hmm. a humongous shock to me that one word such as try could make such a difference because it affected their expectation. The ones that I said try expected that they might fail. Well, we'll try, but you might or might not. But the ones that I said, I'm going to help you get up and we're going to walk, they expected to do it and they did. And so that was a huge, that was a belief that I had. It couldn't be that powerful, but it made a huge difference sort of doing a little mini non-scientific experiment. So that helped me address my language and realizing I have to be careful and be conscious of what I'm communicating to my patients, even when I'm not aware of it. And the belief I had in my career um, at the start of, after my dawn of realization that I wasn't dealing with ortho problems, that I was dealing with persistent pain problems, I sort of sat down with all my background in 
orthopedic manual therapy and Shirley Saruman and motor control and the whole kit and went, I am so not skilled to deal with anything in front of me, (laughs) which deals with emotions. It deals with a whole bunch of things that I did not feel I had any education for to address it. Um, And so my belief was that I was really wasting my time. And I don't know why I stayed there, but I did. And so I stayed in the trenches trying to figure out where does the physiotherapy movement activity role managing pain merge in with the cognitive emotional overlay of treating patients with pain? Um, And how did I get those skills and still stay in my scope of practice? Understanding how emotion plays a role, that was a real difficult thing for me too. And because I I initially came with that typical pain, you know, tissue and sort of maybe the more Cartesian sort of idea of what pain was before we knew more. And for me, the understanding emotion could fit in was difficult. And again, a, a patient taught me that. I had a patient who had a lot of emotional pain. He was in the hospital from a burn, but his wife had died in that same hospital um, from a brain tumor. And his emotional mm-hmm. pain... He told me um, that was far superior to his burn pain, which was down to charred muscle. And I thought, if it can hurt that bad, that is huge. And then I discovered the work of Naomi Eisenberger, and she shows, her work is fascinating, she shows how that the neural substrates in your brain for processing social pain and physical pain are the same. There are many overlap. So that same brain part can process both. And I found that to be fascinating to, to the point that if people feel social pain, if they give them Tylenol or acetaminophen, they experience less social pain. It's fascinating. Wow. So there's big overlaps. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of, of how you guys sort of began to integrate that idea of a that crossover or the the bridge between or the of the biological and the social and the psychological um that is you i mean i think you're speaking to probably a lot of, of the physical therapy population when you're you're speaking to that um what are some barriers that you think um the modern day physical therapist has right now with with switching with which with integrating that perspective a biological biopsychosocial perspective it takes time if you're working in an outpatient clinic and you just started up your clinic and um you know you're you're trying to make a living and you get a patient with persistent pain that, you know, if you do a good assessment, you realize and you look at all the social issues and realize, you know, the bottom tier of Maslow's hierarchy is a disaster. Well, then you have to address, you know, the housing, the the security, all those issues. Um, and you may not have a social worker. And you have to explore the psychological overlay and then, okay, I found out they need support, but it's not my scope of practice. So now I have to arrange for um, some sort of counseling service that they can afford that doesn't have a two-year wait list um, that I can use while I'm seeing this patient. And 
I really have 20 minutes allotted to treat them so that I can financially make some money. I think that's a huge barrier for an outpatient clinic that's private to try. And in within the hospitals, it's the same problem. The hospitals are mandating that you see so many patients an hour, even in the persistent pain clinics. And it takes finesse to manage large caseloads and assess and treat in a biopsychosocial model. And it takes experience. I'd agree. Time is a huge barrier because there's no quick fix by the time you have somebody with chronic or persistent pain. And I think part of it also that's a barrier is learning how to do it because there are so many questions that you just, or not questions, but courses Mm. that don't answer my questions necessarily from a biopsychosocial model. I can learn how to kinesiotype or IMS or even, you know, acupuncture, but it's very rare to find a course that's going to teach me how do I treat in a biopsychosocial sort of way? How do I learn? How do I learn to give pain education? Because I to truly give good pain education, you have to understand it. So one of the barriers is how do I learn? How do, how do I access that information so I feel comfortable with it? I think partly also it's expectation of the patient. What do they expect from us? Because certainly when they come to us, they may have specific expectations of it, of what they want from us or what they think a physio is. And sometimes they don't realize that we can give um, a biopsychosocial approach because it's more effective. They may be Mm -hmm. just thinking that we're going to needle them and then their, their pain is going to be gone. So sometimes I think it's expectations of patients and also expectations of other therapists because this is a, a different approach. And there's prestige in having your part A or part e, B. This, this is a new area and you want respect of your colleagues. So it's sometimes difficult to be the new one in the block or on the clinic where you're saying something different. And when I started out, that was a real hurdle for me is to be traveling a different path because sometimes your colleagues give you the look. And one of my friends who's a wonderful physio would often give me the look. And then she went on one of uh, David Butler's courses and she came back and she said, you know, I think you actually might be onto something. (laughs) (laughs) Redemption. And it was like, hallelujah, you know, and, but it's difficult to break through that. So I think that can be part of a barrier too. And to go back to the teaching pain neurophysiology, once you understand the neurophysiology yourself, that's fabulous. But now you have to convey it to the patient. And there's so many issues involved in that. What is what is the basic literacy level of your patient? What's the health literacy level of your patient? Um, what's the readiness of where they're at? How do you teach? I don't know about you guys, but in physio school, nobody taught me how to teach. Um, and teaching is is knowing how your patient learns. And you have to know how you prefer to teach. Is it is it didactic? Is it experiential? Um, does your teaching method match your patients? Have you even thought about it? Um, we know that metaphor and storytelling is one of the most successful ways to teach pain neurophysiology. Well, if you have some experience with pain, well, maybe you have some of your own stories you can use. But what if you don't have personal experience with pain? Where do you get your storytelling? Where do you get your metaphor? How is that metaphor meaning for your patient? My background is university educated, very white collar, but what about the plumber I have to treat with persistent low back pain who doesn't get sick leave and there's all these factors. How do I convey the knowledge to him in a meaningful manner? And then I have a cousin who works in public relations and we have these great conversations at Christmas about 
the need for physiotherapists to learn how to sell because what we do requires buy-in. And if you're in the advertising industry, you're trying to get people to buy into your product. And it's the same behavioral factors, but we've never really thought about the PR sell side of what we do because that doesn't seem appropriate. But we do really want to engage our patients. We want to hook them to go, hey, you just said something that interests me. And I want to follow up on that. So how do we drop that little seed that makes their ears prick up and say, I want to know more? And these are all things that, as Alex said, it's not easy to find in a course how to do this stuff. Well, and I think that you're, you know, when I hear you talking, there's, there's this idea of you have to meet the patient where they're at. You know, yeah. and totally. and that requires a lot of presence. Uh, yeah. It requires a lot of receptivity. Um, you have to be genuine as a therapist yourself. Um, you know, and and to be able to to meet them where they're at, whether if they're blue collar, if they're if they're an athlete, if they're not an athlete, if they're a musician, wherever they are, what is exactly the hook? Um, that you're able to kind of access so that you can, you can connect in with, with that where you can plug into them essentially and, uh, and, or vice versa, they can plug into you. Um, and so I think, yeah, you're hitting on a lot of massive relational <laughs> sorts of, of ideas here. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Uh, now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to, to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.